Clifford Still turning his back on the New York art world was unfathomable by New York. They're the center. And, and Clifford would say, no, the artists are the center. And what they create are the center. A true artist isn't making a product to be famous for. They're painting because they have no choice and they have something to say. We've arrived at chapter three of A Daughter's Voice. I'm Sarah Wombold. By the end of the 1950s, the abstract expressionism movement was reaching its logical and sometimes tragic conclusions. I think he was totally disillusioned with the motives of these men and what their motives were for painting at all. It wasn't a grand purpose for them. Uh, it was all about making money and fame. Clifford was falling out with gallerists, curators, and his fellow artists. He and Mark Rothko became bitter enemies. Jackson Pollock, who was married to Lee Krasner, died in an alcohol-fueled car crash that also killed a woman and maimed another in 1956. Rothko slipped in and out of depression, eventually leading to his suicide in the following decade. And from an art historical perspective, the second generation of Abex artists had been creating work, but it lacked the punch and immediacy that the original movement had had. They all stopped growing as soon as that particular work became important. Pollock got killed, killed himself. Lothko did too. Didn't know where to go beyond what he had done. None of them continued growing. But life and art goes on for Clifford. He marries his second wife, Patricia, in 1957. That same year, he is invited to represent the United States at the Venice Biennale Art Fair, a huge honor that he declines. He has a major one-person exhibition at the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo, and even comes to Boulder, Colorado in the summer of 1960 to teach a painting course at the university. But by the following summer, the stills are looking to leave New York City for good. I rode with them down to uh, the capital of Pennsylvania, Harrisburg. And just looking at the countryside, he wanted some country. And then they stumbled on this farmland, about 22 to 24 acres in Westminster, but it's really a suburbia farmland. It was a very pastoral, very beautiful place to go. The fresh air was overwhelming. You could chew it almost. He was as peaceful as he was ever capable of being. Where did he paint? In the barn. And there was enough space to put the Jaguar in there, because he had a working car and then the Jag was kept where the art was made. Every so often, he'd come out and he'd say, I got it, I got it, come come see, come see. And the, I've seen many of these paintings, you know, completed or in the process, but this was one where you didn't know. You're, you might say, oh, I'm expecting one of these big monumental things. And you'd walk in and there'd be two or three big canvases with nothing but white on them. And they were like Zen clouds. So we just never knew what was coming. And that was the fun of it. He would often invite me into the studio. You know, when he wasn't, when he was filling in a field, listening to, always listening to a ball game or, or the FM stadio, station with classical music. He might be lecturing me when he was filling in fields. He was comfortable with me in the room. Over the years, the, 
the sheets of plywood that Dad put up to give him a flat surface of some kind to work with, warm to a honey gold, is like walking into a cathedral. It was just a wonderful space, just wonderful. This period of Clifford's life, the 1960s and 70s especially, is marked by a creative proliferation. Clifford felt a sense of liberation during this time, all the while continuing to amass a private collection of huge canvases that needed to be stored nearby, safely, and inconspicuously. So by 64 or 5, they were snooping around for a safer place for the paintings. They moved into this house in New Windsor that was brick, 10-foot ceilings, and they moved the paintings from the barn into that house. They bought the house specifically for the storage of the paintings. Therefore, the two best rooms got the paintings. <laughs> he never felt he was making a product. He was making a body of work that mattered. When he sold them, it was painful, but it gave him money to buy more canvas and paint because they were stone broke <laughs> all the time. We, my sister and I, ate a whole lot of sardine sandwiches when they had a big sale on the cans of sardines at our local grocery store, you know, what was available. It was always a given that he'd keep as many together, that he didn't really like selling them, it wasn't about selling. And it always disturbed him that one is here and one is there, and it would take him maybe six months to determine whether to sell a painting to someone. It was angst. It was horrible for him to give up a painting. I have never sold a picture because I needed the money. I have only sold them to require commitment from the purchaser so that the work and the idea in it especially would be respected and hopefully understood. Only I ask the canvas to be kept together, as many as possible, so that some degree of the totality could be seen rather than specifics or isolated pieces which could be fitted into other categories or rationales created by or for the public games of the artist groups or gangs. He was worried about what do I do with these paintings? I mean, it always been a concern. Where, where can I put this body of work and they'll be safe. Let me break into this story a bit here to talk about the sheer size of this collection. Denver's collection of Clifford Stills artwork comprises 841 paintings, 2,600 drawings and other works on paper, and three sculptures. That's over 95% of everything he ever made. It's the most intact body of work by any major artist from any century and they were storing it in the house. That had to have weighed very heavily on the whole family, especially as they discovered Clifford was sick with cancer. One of my worst moments was about 18 months before he passed. He did come up, once in a while he'd come up alone. I had an L-shaped apartment on 55th Street in those days, so I'd sleep in the couch, he had the bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night and he was just restless and unhappy and it's I finally went over and sat beside him you know, we're sitting on the edge of the bed and it's just he's just why am I doing this no one's understanding this I should just go home and burn them all 
And I finally got exasperated and said, well, Dad, you know, if that's the way you really feel, do it. They're your paintings. So I retreat back again into the shell, knowing only that I have two people, my daughter and my wife, who are dedicated to this. I intend to keep it exclusively in their hands and only hope that it will not injure them. That's the end of chapter three. If you're listening in the galleries, please return your headphones and pick up chapter four in the next gallery.